Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Is your hat on tight? Tight enough. <laughs> I have my tinfoil beret ready. Back to Russia we go. So how did we get some of this quote-unquote secret information? We got the secret information that we talked about last episode when we talked about Georgie Markov and being poisoned with ricin by a KGB agent, probably. We got a lot of the information from that and from this episode through documents from the official Russian poison lab. So there kind were... of like Freedom of Information Act. No, they just was... released them. I don't even know if it was. I mean, because we're, we're covering kind of all of the Russian poison lab history today. We're not gotcha. getting very political, but I want to cover like the scope of the poisons that have come out of this lab. And so... You know, like we said last time when the USSR fell and there was the rearranging of countries and the rearranging of government, some documents were made available that previously were not available. And there's also, as we're going to get into, spy games and counter intel and all of that. Mm, okay. And so a lot of the information that we do have that I can verifiably say, like, yes, we know this. This is not a conspiracy. This, as far as we know, is fact, are from top secret government documents uncovered during research in the early 1990s. Okay. And, so, you know, semi recently, I mean, I suppose that's 30 years ago. Now, 30 years but... ago. But, I mean, in terms of like the whole history of it sure. and everything, sure. we, we were in the dark for a while. And so we do have some, some information that's backdated, right? And okay. then we also have documentation from businesses and we have testimony from, from people who were there. Okay. So, where in history exactly are we starting? Okay. Well, the Poison Russian Lab kind of as we know it, was started in 1921 under Lenin because he survived an attempted poisoning. And this is what I think is so interesting about this whole history with Russia and their poisons and how we're, we don't know what they were, they were doing, but we thought we knew what they were doing and we wanted to get a step ahead of them. Like, the whole reason that Russia created their poison lab, which is super scary and mm -hmm. super real, is because Lenin was poisoned by someone else and he wanted to get ahead of whatever anybody else was doing. Mm. Yeah. He said, nobody's going to fuck with me like I just got fucked with. Right. And so Ever they, again. <laughs> they created this lab that was then called the Special Room. <laughs> and it was designed for the production of substances to be used against the enemies of the people. Broad scope. But it became more obvious that it had nothing to do with the well-being of Russian citizens and instead referred to the Kremlin or the national leader. So the special room is just looking out for the guy at the top. And it, it seems to be uh, a trend over there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't <laughs> know that they have much of a choice. Like when they're that high up in the echelons, it's kind of like, do this or die. Give me a special room or not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So in 1939, this lab, the special room, became known as Laboratory One, or the Chamber in English. Now, the chamber consisted of both a chemical lab and a bacteriological lab. 
Mm. It, it had a small staff, and often the heads of the chamber in its various iteration were jailed or executed. And so that's, you know, kind of what we were just saying. Like, yeah. special room or die. And, like, yeah. you, maybe death is still on the table even after you do what I want. Well, and and maybe it's one of those things where, like, they're cool with some villainry. Mm -hmm. But then when they're, it gets to a certain point and they're like, oh, you know what? Yeah. This, there's a line. And then they're like, okay, well, now you die. Well, and who do you know... Who do you know to trust when, like, sure. your boss is the guy at the head of the Russian poison lab who's out to kill anybody who says anything bad about the Kremlin? Right. His boss is basically the national leader. Like, you don't really want anybody between you and the national leader, and you especially don't want that guy between you and the national leader. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. hard. It's hard out here. So... The members of the chamber performed experiments primarily on living prisoners, as we discussed in the Ricin episode, to determine the efficacy of these bacteriological and chemical poisons. They used living prisoners. In addition to deadly concoctions prepared to eliminate the enemies of the Kremlin, the chamber also experimented with drugs and hypnotism to be used in interrogations of citizens and also their own agents to make sure that they weren't double-crossing them and they weren't giving away mm. information during their off time, you know? Yeah, I I suppose. This this is all sounding very familiar to the CIA and MKUltra. Oh, you don't say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when they did that whole LSD testing and then people were jumping out of windows. And the whole reason that MKUltra and the LSD experiments were conducted is because we didn't know what the Russians were doing and we thought we knew and we thought it was LSD. And I think there was some LSD, but like... It wasn't it wasn't as big of a focus yeah. as we meaning the meaning the United States, United CIA, States made it. thought that it was. Yeah. Anyhow, back to Russia. Back to Russia. So five days after Stalin's death in nineteen fifty three, Wolfgang Salus was killed using a substance developed in the chamber. And I think that the whole timeline is of interest because we started with Lenin and now we're with Stalin and the chamber has prevailed through all of them. They were like, Yes. I like this. I didn't like the last guy, but I like this. I like what we're doing here. Soviet intel reported happily that German officials were not suspicious about the circumstances surrounding Salas' death and concluded that it was a result of pneumonia rather than external forces. And this marked the first time a Soviet poison had been used to kill someone outside of Russia. I'm surprised it took that long. I mean, they were busy at work for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. Like... Yeah. So, I mean, patience is a virtue for which they have time. In 1953, so same year, the Soviet regime announced that the chamber had closed. So they had their first successful mission outside of the Soviet Union, but now we're going to close. So, of course, this was untrue because they just got their first successful kill outside right. of the Soviet Union. They're just going more underground, it sounds like. Yeah, because the chamber moved departments and labs within the regime and was now called Laboratory 12. We'll keep referring to it as the chamber because I think that colloquially it still is referred to as the chamber okay. when we talk about it, but it became Laboratory 12. And in like you know secret documents when they didn't want you to know what they were talking about, they called it Lab X. This is very... Chemical X. I know. What you know. need to make the Powerpuff Girls. Yeah, sugar, spice. And, <laughs> it, but just Lab X, that basic name, yeah. in, my, in my opinion. I, I like the know. special room better. 
I like the special room. <laughs> but at the same time, like, I guess I can't expect them to just be, like, forthright with what they're saying. I guess it's kind of stupid. I think that they're writing any of it down because that could be, like, intercepted. But, like, these stupid code names and, like, secret names and, or things. I'm just like, okay, a because bunch of why little not call boys. It, right. You know? Well, and why not call it, like, Garden Gnome Central? Because when you call it Lab X. Right. It's super suspect. And if you called it Garden Gnome Central, like, it would, I don't know. Yeah. It's just too, it's too on the nose. Yeah. And it seems like they're being, you know, super codename. But Lab X <laughs> sounds like a fucking chemical laboratory. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Yeah, I wonder what they're doing in Lab X. <laughs> Anyhow, so Lab X, Lab 12. Its purpose was now to make products to be used against the enemies of the people who lived in Europe in exile. So now they're spreading. After this first successful kill outside of the mm -hmm. Soviet Union, they're like, we can just make this our goal. Because the people within Russia, we have other means of dealing with. But the people outside of Russia, we don't have as much control over. So we should get on that. We should get on that. Got it. Now, of course... The Soviet Union signed the Biological and Toxic Weapons Convention in 1973. I imagine that since we're doing a whole ass episode, that that didn't mean that they stopped playing with biological and toxic weapons. Pretty did they? much nobody did. And oh. we could do a whole episode where I just rant about weapons conventions, like chemical weapons conventions, because they're, they're all just like so... They're doing it to show face. It's ceremonial. It just seems entirely yeah. ceremonial. Yeah. Well, we and well, and we kind of touched on it back in season one when we covered Agent Orn and the Rainbow Herbicides because yeah. it was kind of like America was like, okay, so how are we going to get around this? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. So it it does very much seem to be just a sign of a pen and no intent for the highest good. Right. And it doesn't. Yeah. But I can only do one of these big political things <laughs> at a, a time. season. So. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so anyhow. Anyhow. So a new lab was then established under the guise of being a civilian pharmaceutical and vaccine company called BioPreparat. And at the same time, Lab X had been expanded and attached to the Operational Technical Directorate in 1978, which is just like part of their government. And this is where this, this te technical directorate was where the assassination umbrella used to kill Georgi Markov was tested. So mm, now Lab X okay. is intrinsically a part of this. Got it. And we have this biopreparat, which is clearly just like a cover. Like they might have made pharmaceuticals and made a profit because we love it. You we know? love to see some money. But, but now we have these two like, oh, we're not doing anything suspicious. We're just gathering a bunch of information about pharmaceuticals and public But health. they're almost getting smarter because at least yeah. that's a better cover than calling it LabX. Well, it still like, is LabX under, underneath the I know, the couple but, layers. Like, but <laughs> calling it BioPreparat or whatever uh -huh. is better than LabX, guys. Like, okay. I mean, they're at least getting sneakier, which I can respect. Like... And British and U.S. intelligence was aware of this to some degree, and they wanted to know, like, what is BioPreparat, what's going on with what was previously mm. Lab 12. And so they determined that between these two labs, the Soviet Union had the world's largest biological warfare program in the world, with up to 32,000 people employed at 30 physical military and civilian <laughs> labs 
and research institutions. And another 10,000 people worked in bioweapons labs. An estimated <laughs> one to 2,000 of the 9,000 scientists, so people with scientific degrees at work in these labs, were experts in their fields on deadly pathogens. So that's huge. Yeah. Like, enormous. Like, 32,000 people working at these 30 different labs or whatever, like, mm -hmm. that's double the population of my hometown right. working for this. And then 9,000, there weren't 9,000 people, like, anywhere doing, like, uh, I know. That's I know. fucking scary. Do you think that any of them were, like, when they were kids and they were, like, playing with their science kids that they went, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to work on deadly pathogens for the Russian government. It's it's difficult because like if the if the whole point of Lab X wasn't to deal with people out you know in Europe outside of Russia and we had this place that was really just for pharmaceuticals and for vaccines and we had all these experts in deadly pathogens working on it it could be great it could be fantastic we could have eliminated all sorts of fucking things all of the deadly pathogens sure. that plague humanity if the goal and the intent was completely pointed in the other direction sure because if they had i mean thirty-two thousand people working on the cure for cancer as as ferociously as they were working on how do we kill people? Right. Like, and pumping the same amount of money into it. Right. Pumping the same amount of money, time, and energy. Like, yeah. the world would be a different place. Yeah. It would. Yeah. That's, that's wild. But also, way to go. Russia number one in something. Russia number one. But it gets worse. Oh, good. <laughs> in 1989, the first biopreparat defector revealed that the size of the operation was 10 times larger than originally estimated by U.S. or British intelligence. 10 times mm -hmm. is a large multiple when you're uh, calling it 32,000 people. Uh-huh. Yowza. Yeah. Okay, that's yep. a lot. So we have a lot of people on the case, is what yes. you're saying. Yes, okay. and we do have people who maybe when they were younger were like, I want to work in deadly pathogens. Right. I want to change the world. And then they ended up working for the Russian government and, you know, Russian intel and doing their time there and then defecting. And so on top of that first defector, we also have an article written in 1992 entitled Poison Policy that was actually printed in the Moscow News by a doctor with insight into the biological and toxicological weapons used by the programs. And so they haven't defected, but they are trying to like blow the whistle on this thing. Mm -hmm. So the article read, I decided to make another attempt to expose before the public eye the hypocrisy of the military industrial complex, which on the eve of the signing of a government convention to ban chemical weapons, developed a new type of chemical weapon five to eight times stronger than all known weapons. That's a pretty powerful statement. Yes, it was so powerful that the doctor who wrote the article was later arrested, but luckily he was subsequently released. Okay. Well, I hope that they didn't do bad things to him. Yeah. Yeah, I that's... think he might have had too much attention drawn to him with that. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. But yeah. not like Georgie who was like writing articles uh, and it's yeah. it's a fine line I suppose of like 
you're drawing too much attention and that's why we want to destroy you mm -hmm. to, oh, you drew way too much attention. We can't touch you. Well, because Georgia Markov was like, I'm living in London and here's how Bulgaria sucks and here's how communism mm. sucks and here's what I want you to know about what it's like to be a citizen in Bulgaria. Instead of specifically dropping like well, here's state a chemical, secret. Uh, here's a chemical weapon five to eight times stronger than all known right. weapons. Like that That's is your, your other governments are actually going to be paying attention to that because other governments don't really care what's going on in Bulgaria. Citizens right. care sure, what's sure, happening sure, to sure. the citizens. But this is a government to government level like oof. And if okay. you have no idea who Georgi Markov is and what we're talking about, get your shit together and go listen <laughs> to our last episode about ricin. For real. Yeah. For real. For real. Okay. Anyhow. Okay. So do we know what he was arrested for specifically or was it just the whistleblowing? I think it was just the whistleblowing. They okay. might have had something else that they said, but it was definitely like the whistleblowing. For sure. Okay. Yeah. So now is when we're going to get into the bulk of what we know about the poisons used or developed by LabX. So poisons of interest... I mean, they run the gamut. So they were used narcotics, mustard gas, strychnine, curare, ricin that we already talked about, anthrax, some radioactive agents, nerve agents. But we don't have all the time in the world, and it was really emotionally draining to even research for this episode. <laughs> so we're just going to choose a couple. Okay. Let's roll. <laughs> okay. So the first example of a drug that wasn't necessarily meant to kill because the intent was not always to kill. Sometimes it was to punish or extract information. Mm. And the first example of this was in 1964, a quote, direct action, which is a KGB euphemism. Sounds like it. Was taken against a West German engineer named Horst Schwerkmann. He was sent to Moscow to remove KGB bugging devices planted in the West German embassy. and. I don't understand bugging devices. That is clearly not my area of expertise. But however he did it, it hurt to listen to on the mm. other end when yeah, of the bugging. And so the KGB got upset with him. I don't think they were necessarily upset they were taking it down. I think maybe that's like a, just a spy move where it's like, ah, we put them up and you took them down. The right. fact that it hurt seemed to be what they were upset about. Well, yeah, I mean, that's... That's going to mess with your spy, super spy ears. <laughs> and so... While he was still in Moscow, just like checking out, you know, a religious surface because he was Orthodox and he wanted to get his religion in and not miss that for the week. God forbid. God the, forbid, <laughs> literally. The KGB entered the church he was in two days before he was supposed to return to West Germany and they sprayed him with liquid mustard gas. Not and a good time. Mustard gas is technically always a liquid. Calling it a gas is technically not right because it's more of an aerosol. But he was just like his leg was soaking in mustard oh. gas. Yeah. That can't be good. It's not good. It is not good. Mustard gas is also called sulfur gas, and it contains chlorine, which is highly fat soluble, so that once it penetrates clothing, it can be easily absorbed into the skin and cause uh. severe blistering, right? And mustard gas, by 1964, this was a well-known agent because this was brought out in World War I. I was just going to say, this is the mustard gas wasn't like 
a brand new shiny toy to them, right? By no means. And it could have been very, very deadly had they chosen to make him breathe it in. He could have ended up getting that blistering in his lungs, essentially, Mm -hmm. and leading to pneumonia, leading to just straight death. Death, yeah. Yeah, but he was sprayed in the leg. And so instead, he just got this severe blistering of his leg. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some of the other effects of mustard gas? Like if it gets sprayed into a church or there are other innocent bystanders like. Um, for our Schwerkmann, after the exposure, his skin would have become itchy and inflamed. His eyes probably would have become inflamed as, re- as well as the eyes of anybody around him who was exposed to that vaporized mustard mm-hmm. gas. And it could induce vomiting because it is mm. it is very, very potent stuff. And so is it – it's like irritating. It's extremely it... irritating. It's irritating okay. to the mucous membranes. And it can actually strip away parts of your esophagus from inhaling it. So it... – And so is it deadly? It can be deadly. But it takes weeks for it to be deadly. It's very, very slow acting. Gotcha. As far as I know, it didn't hurt anybody else. I didn't hear about any deaths or anything like that. Okay. He was just sprayed and his leg was soaked. And I think he lost his leg. Was it an infection that got his leg? No, it's just the blistering, the severe blistering. I'm not squeamish squeamish, but I've got like some images in my head that are like not (laughs) a good time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Poor guy. Yeah, not a good time. But the intent wasn't to kill him, and he didn't die. He just suffered for what gotcha. he did. Yeah, Gotcha. Yeah. So it was just, yeah, like, you fucked up. Now you're going to find out. Yes. You fucked around. You found out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why is mustard a part of the name mustard gas? Because it smells like mustard plants. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. In- interesting. I really never, like, knew why. So I had yeah. I had to ask. Yeah, and I think, actually, I don't remember the order. There was phosgene gas and there was mustard gas, and both were bad. I can't remember which was developed first, but phosgene gas smells like freshly cut grass. And so oh. it's this almost, like, pleasant smell, but they would smell it on the battlefield in World War One and be like, oh, shit, we, we gotta have go. to get out of here. Yeah. Whereas with mustard gas, it's more like... This is a weird smell. I shouldn't be smelling this. Like, I don't think it creeps up on you quite as Right. Like, We're not at Coney Island. We are not having hot dogs. Yeah. Like, why Why is this happening? Yeah. Okay, interesting. I really didn't know. No, it's fine. <laughs> okay. As I said before, the KGB was also interested in substances which could be useful in interrogations and assuring that their own agents weren't double agents. In particular, the chamber investigated several supposed truth serums, these were also an interest of the U.S. at the same time and was another major focus of the MK Ultra program. Right, right, right. Because they really – it was like this whole spy versus spy thing. Yeah. Like – and not like the funny mad TV like cartoon, but like very like, well, we're going to get them to tell us the truth. And they're like, no, we're going to get them to tell us the truth. Like – I don't know. And then everybody's just liar, liar, pants on fire and there isn't a very good truth serum as far as I know. Well, and that's the thing is that, like, I know it's supposed to be like this, you know, the end of Kill Bill when he shoots her with his truth serum and, like, you can't lie to me and lasso of truth shit. But to me, this honestly just sounds like that scene in Mean Girls where, like, one calls up the other and doesn't (laughs) know that there's a third on the line. It's just like, how could you lie to me like that? Like, it's just so juvenile to me, this whole thing. it, It is. And it's like... A good spy, which we have yet to come across, 
but a good spy would very much so like not give it up you know what i mean like it's just this improbable thing mm -hmm. and and to me it really boils down to especially like just because i know more about the mk ultra stuff than i know about this obviously mm -hmm. but like it, people want to get into the inner workings of somebody else's mind so yes. bad and yes. i think that it's one of the truly private places that we have mm -hmm. and governments good and bad really just want to get up in that shit they do they do yeah and they want to make sure that you're they're you're not giving it up as you said that you're a good spy and you're not going to give it up even right. with truth serum right and it's like yeah. stop like this like this is definitely a fool's errand it like, is yeah like in my opinion <laughs> in my opinion but anyhow so what is a truth serum what do we mean by that do, is it as ridiculous as it sounds Yes, yes, because <laughs> truth serums are any substance which can be administered and the, the person would be totally unable to lie as a result, a total liar-liar situation, but chemically mm. induced. So the main truth serum that people are familiar with today is sodium pentothal, which is still sometimes mm -hmm. used for interrogations in India at least as late as 2008. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I mean, that was a while ago, but I couldn't find anything saying like, yay or nay, it's not used that way anymore. Right. The idea of truth serums has been around for ages. Pliny the Elder is credited with saying, in wine, there is truth, in the first century. And I can attest to having seen people become looser in the tongue while drinking or when plied with alcohol by a third party. So there is definitely truth in his statement. Absolutely. Absolutely. As the sober friend at parties, the always DD, the girl who couldn't drink ever. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. God, it's fun going to parties sober, you guys. <laughs> like, sitting there and having a conversation with somebody and you just ask the right questions. Yeah. You're going to find out everybody at the fucking party's dirty secrets. Like, let me tell you how much I have going to the grave <laughs> because of drunk story time. So 1,000%, there is truth in that statement. Yeah. Like, 1,000%. And then, in the 1910s, there was an obstetrician that noticed that the anesthetic sc scopolamine caused patients who were supposed to be asleep to deliver mation in an automatic way. Why mm. was an obstetrician needing patients to be asleep? Because twilight sleep was a big thing that we were doing in the 1910s to deliver babies. Explain this. Yeah, I'm not getting the twilight sleep. Like, is twilight sleep, like... You're, is that when you're like in and out of consciousness? No, it's this, it is sleep, but it's not real sleep because it's, it's just pain management really is okay. what it was. And so the whole reason they introduced it in the first place allegedly was that Queen Victoria chose to be chloroformed for the <gasps> birth of one of her children. She was like, I have done this like seven times and I'm not doing this again while <laughs> I'm, I'm awake. over it, guys. Yeah. Like oh okay so, like she's like fucking knock me out knock give me the, the chloroform give me the rag i am not living through this again <laughs> i will see you on the other side one way or another <laughs> but so chloroform scopolamine these are these are anesthetics though so it was meant for okay. pain management so that you weren't awake for it but it's it's an anesthetic so you just don't remember it the pain is still there oh. but you don't remember giving birth and so i guess 
I guess. So is that the twilight sleep is just not remembering it? It's not remembering it. And I don't know how knocked out you are. So I don't know if you're able to like be able to push. I kind of feel like you're so knocked out you can't push the baby out, which seems like it could lead to some severe complications mm. that maybe they didn't think all of the way through. I mean, as as a person who can't give birth, like I, I don't think about this too much anymore. <laughs> but like, I'm pretty sure you need to push. Right. Right. I'm like the sure baby, she... the baby does not crawl out of that little hole. Yeah. And I don't think like... that your uterus or your cervix contracting does 100% of the work. No, it's I. It, my understanding is that the contractions are just like, hey, this thing's happening, yeah. whether you're ready or not. Yeah. But you have to bear down and and push the baby out. Yeah. Right. But, right, right, right. So it was an anesthetic. It didn't actually get rid of pain. To get rid of pain, the scopolamine had to be paired with morphine, which was very easy to do. So overall, this whole twilight sleep thing was very dangerous. But mm. from it, they were like, hey, when the women are not quite all the way out, they say a bunch of wacky shit to me that I probably oh. shouldn't have heard and then don't remember saying it. And then another thing I wanted to say about scopolamine is that it's been called the zombie drug because it's there's this whole urban legend around it where you're supposed supposedly you you go to South America is always where these stories take place and somebody will come up to you and blow a powder in your face and you are completely under their control and you'll empty their your bank account and you'll like rob people and give them the money and you won't have any memory of it which is not a thing. Okay. It's not a thing. It's not a zombie drug. Well, it will make you less nauseous and it won't make you remember things. Right. I literally have scopolamine patches in my medicine cabinet because there was a time when my nausea and vomiting was so bad that we were literally trying everything. Yeah. And, I mean, to me, it it didn't work great. I was still puking. <laughs> but I, but I'm now I'm like, man, could I slap some of those onto some and be like, tell me the truth. Nope. Doesn't I mean, work. The thing is, is that somebody might be very open with you about whatever, well, but it doesn't mean they're telling you the truth. That's and it's very true because because even like I was saying with all of the drunk story time, like there are some of those stories that I'm like, this is based on on fiction. This yeah. is not reality. Like, but but it's one of those things where if something is so real to somebody or they've told that lie so many times yeah you can make it seem like that at least to yourself and so if you're on the zombie drug and you're just like yeah you know what i did i fucking like lassoed like 13 cows at <laughs> once and i'm just like weird flex but all right josh all i don't right. even think you have to believe it i think that if if you are on an anesthetic you might just come out of it and be like I was Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. And you might believe right. that. <laughs> and you believe that. Well, I mean, and there are so many of those videos that are, you yes. know, yes. like, and so to me, it sounds like the scopolamine is more like the videos that we see of people who had their wisdom teeth put taken out and then they're saying crazy shit to their mom, like, stop touching my tit. <laughs> so we started out with scopolamine, Twilight Sleep. In the 1930s, American police forces began using anesthetics like scopolamine and barbiturates like sodium amytal to conduct investigations to investigate corruption. I, I'm sure that went well. I'm sure they got I'm all the sure. same useful information we were just talking about. Yeah, sure. 
during World <laughs> War II, these drugs found another use in treating traumatized soldiers because under the effects of the drugs, they were able to discuss the painful events they endured during the oh, war, which seems very similar to the ketamine therapies that we have today. They, it does. It yeah. does. Of course, Nazis experimented with mescaline in the Dachau concentration camp, and the CIA explored alternatives like LSD and cannabis as truth mm. serums. Not the cannabis, you guys. <laughs> Not the cannabis. Gonna Their... make me hungry and tell all my secrets. <laughs> Their effectiveness made them an essential component in interrogations, but I what? just don't see how that lasted. I don't no. see how that lasted at all. Now, I, I will plug it again because last podcast on the left is simultaneously doing the MK Ultra series as we're recording these. And I th think we'll still be putting it out when our first, when Ryzen releases. So go listen. After you listen to us, go ahead and listen to them because Marcus Parks has a great description from the CIA on what pot was like clinically. <laughs> oh my God, I it's can't wait for that. Hilarious. It is so funny and it's so true. He does, Marcus Parks does mispronounce vasodilator, so he does not know all of his chemistry. You can come back to us for all of that, but it's we, a good series still. No, and he does good, and he does good research, and he yeah. does a hell of a job wrangling in the rest of the, the bunch, so the kudos cats. to Marcus Parks. I, yes, yes, he, he heard them cats goo. Yes. <laughs> Despite never being accepted by American courts at any time, most of the articles I was able to find on Truth Serum doing my research here in 2022 were debates on whether or not Truth hmm. Serum should be used in post-9-11 interrogations of suspected terrorists. Which brings us to the torture debate surrounding Truth Serums. Yes. This is kind of a long quote, but I think it's important. Mental pain or suffering alone is not sufficient under the UN Committee Against Torture's definition because interrogations must intentionally inflict mental pain or suffering for certain purposes such as obtaining information. With truth serum, the mental pain or suffering would be a side effect of the drug-induced indulgence of information. As a result, the administration of truth serum falls through a lacuna in the Committee Against Torture's definition of torture. Oddly enough, the threatened administration of truth serum does constitute torture mm. because of the mental pain of a threat satisfies the intent requirement, but the side effect of mental harm from the use of truth serum does not. Oh, what a fun paradox, though. Yeah, yeah. Like, threatening truth serum is, in their eyes, more malicious than actually using it. Did I understand it right? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. It, Interesting. But I also just think that it's so backwards that at well, no yeah. point in history did it actually yield any sufficient information and then we have all this you know post 9-11 fear mongering that's like we should use truth serum and it's like but it's torture right and haven't we learned anything about torture i know in the years following 9-11 our <laughs> record was very 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 bad but like come on guys come on yeah interesting specifically though there was one Russian substance of major interest in the chamber that was a truth serum, and it was called SP-117. Rumors say that this was the most effective truth serum developed by the KGB to mm. be used in interrogations. It was supposed to be extremely effective because it didn't have a center or taste, and so you could just put it into somebody's drink, they'd oh. spill their guts to you, and they and wouldn't remember. Yeah, unknowing. So there's none of that whole, we're going to threaten it, then right. we're going to actually do it. It's just unbeknownst to them, 
but again, akin to the LSD drugging exactly. done by the CIA. Gotcha. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Do we know anything more about it? Like what it was chemically or is it is this all still under lock and key this sp117 i don't think it was real i just oh. don't even think it was real i think that this should is i just... get my tinfoil beret back on then? yeah you got to put your hat back on after this i think that we really start diving into a lot in fact i have allegedly bolded here because i need to remember to start saying allegedly because usually we cover these cases where it's like yes this person has been convicted yes this person pled guilty to doing this this is all so much from this point allegedly allegedly so allegedly assassinated ex-fsb so later half of the kgb the fsb an ex-fsb officer alexander litvinenko suggested that russian presidential candidate ivan ribkin was drugged with sp-117 by fsb agents during the 2004 presidential election which would be a big fucking deal, right? That would be a big deal. But, like, there's no, like, there's the no fact, proof. The fact that Litvinenko said it is like, okay, interesting. We're going to talk a lot about Alexander Litvinenko in the second half of this episode because we're going to focus entirely on his assassination. And so, like, potentially, potentially this is true because he's saying it's sure. true. But we have no idea what it is. And just the whole, like, oh, it's the perfect truth serum. It's not only a truth serum, but you can't taste or smell it. Like It's too good to be true. It seems like it is. So maybe they did do something to this candidate. And then, you know, he, he dropped out because shit got weird. But I don't think it's true. I don't think that this actually happened. And we, I don't research much. But <laughs> Kayla is is very, very particular on sources and making sure that we have it together for what we present. And so I appreciate you mentioning that this is something that we don't have concrete yeah. evidence for. Well, and speaking of that, I did get some books. Thank you, patrons, for giving us your donations, which Thank allows you, us to get we love books. You. And if you want to become a patron and help us get books, you can always find us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash lethaldosepod. I got this book, and it was called The KGB's Secret Poison Lab or something like that. And I got quite a bit of information from it that it's never good to get things from one source. Sure. And so as I was fact-checking all of these, there was a lot of stuff that didn't quite seem right in that book. Oh, right? interesting. And so I was like, okay, this is about as good as jumping off point as Wikipedia is, right? Oh. So that wasn't great. And then I found another book called A Very Expensive Poison by Luke Harding, which talks entirely about the Litvinenko assassination, which we're about to get into. And that was a great one. And I also found a documentary that interviewed him a lot. So I was like, I can't just have Luke Harding be the one guy that's sure. my source. But basically, A Very Expensive Poison is just a narrative version of this report that was released in 2015 by the uk and it's very dry but it's essentially the exact same thing one just has narrative breaks and the other doesn't so gotcha Luke more Harding palatable was good. <laughs> more palatable yeah. yeah the other book that i found interesting but i'm not sure how credible luke harding seems to know his shit so well thank you for not bringing us a pile of bullshit <laughs> i try very hard not to but like i said i know you do it's really hard with this episode to be like this is true i don't know about this and also everything is allegedly well, everything's allegedly, and it's also Russia is kind of number one for misinformation. If, you know, them and China are always fighting for that title, but yeah. 
So it's hard to to say what is a misdirect. Right, exactly. Because cuz to me, what if the SP117 is a misdirect to something else? Right, and who like, knows? Like I've got my tin foil beret ready. <laughs> who like, knows do you what, know what I'm like... saying? What, what would Litvinenko want to get from continuing the misinformation? Or maybe he was right. misinformed. Maybe he's misinformed because yeah. he's not high enough up on the food chain. Yes. Yes. I do think he was kind of high up, but we will get to that. When there's right? 32,000, oh, wait, <laughs> 10 times, 320 fucking thousand chemists or fucking lab scientists working on it. What? Yeah. Yeah, like, it's intense. That that's a I don't want to be the one that's in charge of the chain of command for three hundred thousand fucking people. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, Sorry. it's fine. It's fine. But in terms of all of that, we are going to get into it right okay. now. Right now. Okay. Assassination of Alexander Litvinenko. As I said, he was a former FSB agent who specialized in eradicating organized crime in Russia. So, like, the Russian mafia. He was, like, very – he knew a lot about the Russian mafia. Okay. He defected from Russia to Great Britain in 2000. And then he proceeded to write books and journalistic articles in Great Britain that sought to expose what he knew about the inner workings of the Russian government and crime. And he was apparently also working for MI6 – which is the UK mm. Foreign Intelligence Service, specifically mm -hmm. military intelligence. Mm -hmm. I don't, again, pretend to understand how any of this works. But apparently he was working for MI6, and he also worked for Spanish intelligence. So he was like a big deal in the Russian dissidents scene. Yes. Yes. Okay. Very big deal. Very big deal. Okay. Of note, in his writing, he directly accused Vladimir Putin of being a pedophile and ordering the assassination of another Russian journalist in 2006. And shortly thereafter, the events leading to Litvinenko's own death began. So I'm guessing that this is a, a large part of why this whole assassination thing got going. Yes, yes. Yeah. He called out Putin directly and called him a pedophile, so yeah. Yeah, that's going to do it. And this isn't like some QAnon mom saying like, they're all pedophiles, man. And I mean, I don't know to like some some of his theories, some of the things he said, some of his friends, even his Russian friends are like, I don't know about that, Alexander. Like the whole reason he called Putin a pedophile is because he kissed the belly of a young boy, which weird, very weird, should not have been done. Maybe as a pedophile. I'm not going to back the guy, but it's not it's not the red shoe QAnon Wayfair. No. Well, and it's. Right, but it's all, and it's also <laughs> just like, like Maxwell. It's not that. That's who. I was no, thinking. and and it's not. It, it's it's a little different. It's different. Yeah. It's like, inappropriate for sure. It's, it's inappropriate, and I mean, there are real pedophiles. I mean, it's it's almost. It reminds me of. Do you remember when all of those kids and their coach were stuck in the cave? And mm -hmm. everybody was trying to save them. And then Elon Musk and his douchiness rolled up to the party and said, I want to be the savior. And there was a guy who was like an expert in diving caves. And then Elon Musk called him a pedophile. Oh, for I wanting don't to save the that. kids. Oh, yeah. God. It, I'm I'm here for any Elon Musk bashing. And so yeah. any type of faux pas. I mean, I love to rub it into all the crypto bros, but 
<laughs> Anyhow, if there are cryptobos in the audience, I love you. I Rethink don't your you. crypto broiness, though. So in July of 2006, things got even more fucked up for Litvinenko. Laws were passed in Russia, which allowed Russia's spy agencies to eliminate extremists anywhere abroad. They also expanded the, nation, mm -hmm. the definition of extremism to include libelous statements against Putin or the administration. And not just Putin. It didn't say Vladimir Putin in the law. No, but like just like the leader. government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, it, nice getting that in there so you could basically have uh, free reign to do whatever the fuck you want. Like, oh, yeah. he made fun of my khakis. Yeah. Off with his head. Yeah. Or no, not off with his head. Let's poison him. <laughs> exactly. We have to make it discreet still. Right, 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 right. Like I said, I'm not going to pretend to fully understand what the public is even allowed to know about MI6. But apparently, Litvinenko was being paid on retainer for them, but was not a full-time agent in 2005. So before that law was passed, he was doing business with them and Spain, but was like a part-time spy, which I don't, I don't get, but whatever. <laughs> sure. To become a more valuable asset and become full-time, he needed to find Russians that clients of MI6 would want information on. Mm. And obviously, Litvinenko had a bit of a hurdle with finding Russians because he defected, a lot of his friends were in jail, but he did have one person whom he met in 1995 that he was able to reconnect with for the purpose of gathering information. And this man was Andrei Lugovoy, a Moscow businessman who was willing to collect information in Moscow and deliver it to Litvinenko in London, which would make money for both men. Win-win. Unfortunately, Lugovoy's constant travel to the UK from Russia around this time to, you know, get into business with Litvinenko aroused suspicion at the UK consul regarding his visa. And Lugovoy just explained it away as, I'm just visiting a friend. I'm just visiting a friend a lot mm. from Russia to the I, I, we We're besties. We're, we're besties. We're besties. And I'm a Sagittarius globetrotter. <laughs> but there are no friends in spy games. Nay, no nay. friends. On October 16th, 2006, Lugovoy flew into the UK from Russia with a partner named Dmitry Kovtun and a container of polonium. This, Alrighty. Yeah, this is where it gets intense. There's All a lot right. of it like. It sounds like it. We things escalated very fucking quickly. I mean, like, there was a lot of like nitpicky like human social interaction that I just skimmed over because it wasn't super interesting. So we're here now. No, let's. I want to get to the meat of it. Get me to the poison <laughs> polonium. <laughs> Scotland Yard is still not entirely sure how they managed to smuggle the substance into the country, and they assumed that it had to have been a very small amount, you know, TSA-approved type thing. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, three-ounce <laughs> container or less. They think that it was maybe stored in the wall of a pen, in, in the well oh, of a pen. Mm -hmm. Not an umbrella this time, eh? No, not an umbrella. In, in a pen or as a gelatinous shell so that it couldn't be... It couldn't be found in any way, but if you, like, maybe put it into a liquid, now it can it disperse would. as polonium. I like that they get creative. You you yeah. listeners know that I do not like a predictable bitch. And <laughs> so I really like that they're mixing it up. They're not using the same poison. Mm -hmm. They're not using the same storage. Love to see it. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about the poison that they're using this time. You don't need very much to kill somebody with polonium because polonium 210 which is the parent form that they were using has a minimum ld50 of about one microgram which is a millionth of one gram 
And I tried to express what a microgram was last episode. You know, it, it fits on a portion of an LSD tab. It is so small. And that's the LD50. Weight for weight, polonium is around 5 million times more toxic than hydrogen cyanide. Oh, good. And the oral LD50 for polonium-210 is about 50 nanograms compared to about 250 milligrams for hydrogen cyanide. So just in case you needed more of a visual for that. Yeah. So this is, I mean, it's reminding me of the fentanyl versus heroin situation. Right. right. right? Similar to that. Similar to that. But the thing about polonium is that it's not chemically poisonous. Its hazard comes from its intense radioactivity as an Mm. alpha emitter. And so that makes it also very difficult to handle safely. Yeah, and I mean, especially when you're trying to be sneaky with it, especially if you're trying to dose somebody with it, because, I mean, we all know the scene in the beginning of Simpsons where he's got the, like, radioactive tube and he's, like, trying to grab it and stuff. If you're trying to dose somebody, you're not in a hazmat suit. No. You're not. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. they're, They're throwing all caution to the fucking wind. I don't think anybody explained to Lugavoy or Kovtun the danger of handling this oh. at all. At all. And that'll become very clear. Okay. But a, a couple more things I just want to say before we get into it so that everybody else sees where I'm coming from and the holy crap, what the fuck are you guys actually doing? Alpha emitters are the safest, big air quotes, the safest type of radioactive <laughs> substances that we have. Okay. Because alpha emitters, it'll get stopped by skin, clothes, that'll stop it. Now, you can end up with contamination of your skin, so you could end up with, like, some cancerous cells from contamination, but it will be stopped by your skin. The danger is if you ingest it, and then it has free reign in your body, because then it'll just start ionizing cells left and right. And so is this something that is general knowledge among the scientific community at this time, or was polonium researched... By Russia alone. Okay, this is 2006. No, we knew a lot about polonium at this okay, time. Because we knew that we could make nuclear weapons from it. And so this will come into play later in the story as well. We knew that we could make le- nuclear weapons. We kind of all agreed we weren't going to do that, that it wasn't very effective and it was kind of sketchy to do that. But okay. there were a couple commercial uses for polonium. Gotcha. But in so, general, so we knew about it. So this wasn't something that was developed no. solely by the chamber no not whatsoever got it okay Okay. polonium is dangerous to handle as i just said because of the alpha emitters so you shouldn't inhale it you shouldn't be around it you'll be kind of okay but it's not again it's the safest compared to fucking gamma and beta radiation sure now polonium 210 exists in cigarette smoke so we're all exposed to teeny tiny levels but it's also kind of like how an x-ray one x-ray isn't going to hurt you. But, you know, we do ask, Is I mean, people with uteruses at least are asked, are you pregnant? Is there any chance right. you could be pregnant? They, they ask you like three times before you right. get an x-ray. They, and they do, yeah. Because it could be dangerous to developing cells. It could be dangerous to somebody who's more at risk. So limited exposure won't hurt you. But if you have exposure to more than one x-ray, it could hurt you. So the assassins meet up with Litvinenko at a security company in London. He thinks that they're just talking business. And it becomes immediately apparent that we're dealing with another set of fucking bumbling idiots. We love to see it. 
I just, I don't know how we keep coming across these people. Because there are a lot of bumbling idiots in the world. And I think that's why. They just keep getting a hold of poisons. It's almost like crimey things attract <laughs> bumbling idiots. Huh. Maybe mm. that's the correlation. Uh, yes, I think you have. I don't, okay. <laughs> Anyhow, Luke Harding wrote in his book, A Very Expensive Poison, Lugavoy and Kovtun had no idea what they were carrying. Their behavior in Britain was verging on suicidal. <laughs> Nobody in Moscow appears to have told them polonium-210 had intensely radioactive properties, or that it left a trace, mm. placing them in specific locations and indicating via telltale alpha radiation markings who sat where. It <laughs> was possible to identify anything and everything they touched, door handles, telephones, wash basins. So not only are they bumbling idiots, not only do they not know how to safely handle the polonium, but they're basically like leaving a trail of breadcrumbs. Yes. Yes. Nice guys. They must nice. have gotten it on their hands at some point before leaving their hotel oh, and they good. just got Same. it on everything. They got it on fucking everything is contaminated with polonium that they were able to go back after all of this is said and done. They were able to go back and test these locations and be like, oh, they had to have sat here in this chair because hmm. this chair shows contamination and this chair does not. So they were literally just able to go around and, oh, yep, there they, oh, here we go. Yes. There they go again. Yes. Oh, my gosh. The idiocy never ceases. No. And, and I mean, we're, you know, we're led to believe that spies keep a low profile and you'll never know who's a spy and they're so good right. at spying. <laughs> right. These guys are fucking idiots when it comes to this. I guess they were just, like, dressed in really, like, weird clothing with like a lot of jewelry and stuff that made them stand out and they were like kind of big guys and so you'd think that they would do something to like make themselves low profile more low profile since their like own bodies were working against them but these guys were just like trying to like hit on women and like mm. yeah i don't get it bumbling idiots <laughs> anyhow so lugavoy and kovtun met Litvinenko and another spy at the agreed-upon time to discuss business, and it's believed that Litvinenko's cup of tea or glass of water, we're not sure what he was given during this mm -hmm. meeting, but it was spiked with polonium at some point. And it was probably the tea, because the fourth person present with Litvinenko, that, that other guy, recalled Lugavoy being very insistent that they try to tea. You gotta try the tea. Tea's so good. Have you had the tea? Mm -hmm. Oh my god. I know. I know. But Litvinenko never drank the tea and never drank the poison. And it's possible that he actually spilt his glass on accident or something because the tablecloth and the chairs were radioactively contaminated. Oh, my God. Showing a spill. Yeah. Uh, Litvinenko's presumed chair was considerably more contaminated than Lugavoy's and Kovtun's. And it just shows that, again, they got the polonium on themselves and then got it everywhere else. <sighs> Everywhere but in the target's body. It, yes. Yes, so far. Got it. And Russian authorities would later try to claim that the excessive contamination of Litvinenko's chair at this meeting suggested that he was actually trying to poison Lugavoy and Kovtun. Oh, nice. And that all the subsequent contamination that was traced on this polonium trail was a result of foul play on Litvinenko's part. 
This was the version of the story that was even shared with Russian media sources. Sure. But of considering how the story ends, it's it's doubtful. And it gets worse. Tell me more. <laughs> Lugovoy and Kovtun had actually caused contamination of services even before their meeting with Litvinenko. So there's no. no way that it was Litvinenko there to poison them. Well, right, because they've given the breadcrumbs up. Yeah. They they had contamination in their hotel rooms and the bus that Litvinenko came on, they were able to like use his bus card, be like he was on this bus. Bus mm. was totally clean. Okay. And then after this failed attempt to kill Litvinenko when the cup was spilt, they dumped the remaining polonium down the bathroom no. sink of Lugavoy's hotel room. So no, so not only did they take this poison, trail it all around fucking town, <laughs> make a scene, wear ostentatious outfits, yeah. like then they go ahead and just throw it down. So is there any way that this would have affected the drinking water or is it such a small amount that it wouldn't have had the potential to affect the drinking water? I mean, maybe it was such a small amount that it got dispersed, like I was saying, where, like, cigarette smoke were, were all exposed to it in that way. But I don't know. Like, I, I didn't hear anything about it. I didn't hear about any subsequent, you know, illnesses or anything from it. But I feel like there has to be something it's, going on in that water now it after seems that. it seems like i mean just from what i've learned from this podcast <laughs> and how dangerous this shit sounds it's probably not good to get in in, no. the, in the drinking water no no or, no or even the sewer i mean for yeah. that matter sewer I mean, groundwater like, yeah it's not right. good because that's that's the issue in my hometown is a lot of the groundwater yeah is contaminated yeah i'm sure it wasn't good but i didn't no. hear any any follow-up okay. about it Gotcha. So that evening, following that first meeting, Litvinenko was ill and vomited, but thought nothing of it. He thought that this was just, you know, I don't know, I had something bad at lunch. Sure. But it was likely that this was an early sign of radiation poisoning just being near the polonium that was decaying in his water of tea into, you know, the daughter polonium and things like that. Mm -hmm. Which, to me, begs the question, how the fuck were Lugavoy and Kovtun holding up? You took the words right out of my mouth. That's what I was wondering was like, he's around it for one day, but these guys are playing splish splash. I'm playing with my polonium. Yes. And fucking just gallivanting all around and they're fine and continuing to gallivant. Yeah. But they did have some issues because they actually checked out of their hotel rooms early the next day and went to a different hotel saying that they didn't like the condition of the rooms in the old hotel. Oh, I hate it when my hotel room's radioactive. <laughs> That's the thing is they were probably just wanting to avoid further exposure to the fucking radiation they were exposing themselves to after dumping it down the drain. Aye, aye, aye. God. And, and then, and then they're just having a vacation and they're just trying to fuck around in London. Like, they they literally went to eat pizza and tried to go find women to sleep with. Nice. Right. So they, they didn't succeed in their assassination, but you might as well live it up in London. And so they, there's this story where they're flirting with some women, and one of them asks where they're from, and they tell her Russia. And she jokes, oh, are you guys with the KGB? And these two fucking idiots just stop talking to her. They, oh, my God. Guys, right? they don't what try a to tell. Like, 
they don't try to play it off. Like they don't. No. They don't act like, offended. Oh, like Russia. Russia doesn't. They just stop talking to her. And then Mother later, Russia made them stop talking. And they, <laughs> they were in an elevator at the time, and so it was just like awkward, awkward. silence. Oh and then my god! Later, they saw this woman again, and she <gasps> she you know tried talking to them, and they <laughs> just ignored her like they'd never seen her before. Oh my god! And it's like way to make yourself stand out. <laughs> Yeah, like this, this, they can't get much worse at this point unless they literally walked into MI6 and said, Hello, I'd like to report a crime. <laughs> I am the crime. I am criming all over Great Britain. I just, I just, as spies, you would think that they would have higher intelligence and charisma stats. You fucking think, <laughs> but their skill tree got all fucked up. I'm starting to think that. You and I would make better spies. <laughs> I don't want to be a spy. I don't need that kind of stress in my life. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Me either, I suppose. But <laughs> Okay. On the 17th, they met with Linton Vinyanko again for dinner, which was uneventful. It was just a dinner. And then they tried to get Lit Vinyanko to go clubbing with them. But the married Lit Vinyanko refused. Traces of radiation could be found at the booth at the restaurant and the sex club that Lugavoy and Kovtun attended without Litvinenko. So they still are spreading around. The next day, they're still spreading around polonium everywhere. Well, and they really said, like, we're failing our fucking mission, but we might as well go party, even party. though, A, we didn't get the target to go with us, because, B, spies got to get laid, too. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta work off that pizza. So then Lugavoy and Kovtun flew back to Moscow, totally unsuccessful, and Lugavoy returned to London on October 25th, and on the plane ride there, his plane seat would later show radioactive contamination. Oh, wow. Yeah. But this trip was also not to bring about Litvinenko's demise. By all accounts, it should have been because Lugavoy had just learned that Litvinenko was about to testify in court about the Russian mafia. So it would have been like a perfect time to have mm -hmm. offed him in terms of spy coordination. Mm -hmm. But it's unknown why Lugavoy didn't use his vial of polonium that he brought on Litvinenko at this time. Rather than using the vial, he again poured the polonium down the drain of his hotel bathroom <sighs> And he fucking got it everywhere. I don't understand this at all. Because he had to clean up spilt polonium with towels, which he then just left. And he left the empty container that the polonium was in in the trash oh can. God. And there was so much fucking polonium, so much astronomical amounts of radioactive contamination that the guys who came in when they were following the polonium trail got the readings. And then they turned around and were like, we, we can't stay here. We have to leave. Jesus. Yeah. And then the, the towels, I guess, like, had been thrown down the laundry chute for the hotel and hadn't been washed yet and were so fucking radioactive that they had to be sent to the Atomic Weapons Establishment at Aldermaston, which is the UK government nuclear facility. Wow. Yeah. He just got polonium everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, and then Lugavoy flew back to Moscow and contaminated his airline sea on the way back. So, now it's Kovtun's turn to give it a solo shot. He flew to London from Moscow via Hamburg on October 28th with a vial of polonium, 
that also left radioactive contamination everywhere he went. Kovtun met with a restaurant manager friend while in Hamburg and asked if he knew a cook who worked in London. The friend did, and Kovtun told him, quote, I have a very expensive poison. I need this cook so he can put the poison in Litvinenko's food or drink. He's just being totally out there with, this is the plan. And just broadcasting it. Yeah. And Kovtun tried to explain to the friend that Litvinenko was a traitor, which the friend did not care. He was in Germany. He was like, why, why would I care about this? He also said that, you know, you should be upset. You should, you should personally feel motivated to help me with this. And the friend told Kovtun that the cook wasn't going to ruin his life for Kovtun's cause and that poisoning Litvinenko was nonsense because he's like, what is, is this What acne? are we doing here? Like right. Riley cart- cartoon? Right, right, right. And that Kovtun should get a real job. <laughs> Adding fucking insult to injury here. I like this guy. Right. He's like, you're I just, like him. don't be dumb. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and get a job. You, you're a terrible fucking spy anyway. Okay, so then Lugavoy flew into London on October 31st with his entire family. He brought Low his profile. whole family. Low profile. Yep. And the family was in London because they were going to watch a soccer game while there and do some sightseeing. You know, while dad's doing quote unquote business. Yeah. So anyhow, while they're doing their sightseeing, Kovtun meets up with him and Lugavoy and Kovtun set to their final attempt to kill Alexander Litvinenko. Kovtun had actually still managed to get the number for the cook and he called him up. Because, you know, he was like, this guy's integral to this plan that I have like, because I'm Even though he spy. wants no fucking part. <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't. And so Kovtun calls the cook late that morning. And this is the first time he's calling the cook is the morning that they need him. But the cook was busy. <laughs> and basically said as much. He's like, I, I'll call you I back. I got shit to do. <laughs> right. And he never calls him back. So Kovtun and Lugavoy had counted on this guy so much that now they have to rearrange all of their plans that they made with Litvinenko because they have to go to a different restaurant. Oh, my God. And these fucking bumbling morons told Litvinenko that he had to hurry to this meeting where they were planning to poison and kill him. Right. Because they had to be quick because they needed to leave to catch the soccer game. Priorities. Yeah, but... (laughs) So the restroom where Kovtun and Lugavoy freshened up or probably prepared the polonium in whatever way they did that showed high levels of radioactive contamination. You know, I'm shocked at this point. Yeah. Uh, it showed contamination in two of the stalls, below the hand dryer, and on the sinks. Oh, my God. Yep. Why Lu- use soap when you can use polonium? <laughs> yeah. Lugavoy and Kovtun ordered a pot of tea for their meeting with Litvinenko. They each poured a cup for themselves, and then they poured the polonium into the remaining tea in the teapot. They knew at this point that Litvinenko was unlikely to order anything himself. They'd they'd gotten to know him enough to know that the restaurant was too fancy. And so they offered him the rest of their tea. We're not going to drink it. Here's some tea. You know, have a drink at this meeting. And then they were like, okay, we got to split. We got to go catch the game. Litvinenko poured himself a small cup of the poison tea, took a few swallows, and then didn't even finish his cup because he thought it was too bitter and it was already cold. Mm. But it was enough. Later, it was found that Litvinenko ingested 26.5 micrograms of polonium, 
the equivalent of about 175,000 x-rays all at once. Oh, that's a lot of x-rays and a lot of radiation in your belly. Yeah, it's not good. It's not Mm -mm. good. No. (laughs) So along with Litvinenko now being internally contaminated, his jacket sleeve was contaminated. But so was the entire bar area that they had occupied, mm. the tables, the teapot, the entire dishwasher where oh, the, yeah. the staff washed the teapot right. was contaminated. Uh. And then there was further contamination from the employees handling all of these things. And, and so, then touching everything else that servers at a restaurant yeah. and are going to touch. Yeah. And so there was contamination oh. on the crockery, other tabletops, the till, the handle of a coffee strainer, bottles of alcohol behind the, the bar, ice cream scoops, and a cutting board. It was fucking everywhere. So do we have any idea as far as like what the timeline was like between – the actual poisoning and to when everybody in their Geiger counters are coming in to figure out the trail of breadcrumbs because I love how clear the play-by-play is with this. Mm -hmm. Because of their bumbliness, Uh we are given this, but I I just, do we know how much time passed? So only about a month passed. Oh, wow. So the polonium trail left by Lugavoy and Kov tomb between mid-October and Litvinenko's hospitalization in early November was actually sought out and recorded in December of 2006. Mm. It was found using alpha detectors and swabs from contaminated areas and objects and were sent to both the atomic weapons establishment, which I've already mentioned, Mm -hmm. and the Health Protection Agency to verify that this could have only been left by polonium-210. They were Mm. very specific. Okay. And, of course, their trail was verified with CCTV footage, witness statements, and phone records that they got from June to November of 2006. So on top of the polonium trail, like, as much as I need to be saying, allegedly they did this, allegedly they put the polonium in the teapot. It's pretty fucking apparent. Well, because this is is worse than blood at a crime scene. Like, Mm -hmm. there's blood... Batter analysis, right? Like that exists, but this is even better. This is way better because blood splatter analysis isn't even admissible in court. I don't know. It's not because it's it's (laughs) just it's angles and trajectory and speed and things like that. Or like, but even like a bloody handprint that says like Mark did it. (laughs) Like this is better than that because who the fuck is Mark? Right. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like Oh, I love it. Okay. I love it. After well, I don't poison- love that he died. Let me clarify. <laughs> right. Right. Of course. Right. Of course. Right. After poisoning Litvinenko, Kov tuned then, predictably, poured the remainder of the polonium down the bathroom <laughs> sink of his hotel room. He predictable bitch. I thought <laughs> that we were going to give away the non-predictable award to the, but nope, nope, nope. They, they, they lost it. They had it and they lost it. And this is where it gets really sad. Mm. At the Litvinenko home, Alexander's wife Marina had cooked up a light celebration dinner to mark the six-year anniversary of their escape from Russia. That evening, Alexander became violently ill and vomited Mm. all through the night. The following morning when Marina woke up, Alexander was pale and having trouble breathing. And it was at this point that he had believed that maybe he had been poisoned. 
the irony of the day. I know. I, that's sad. I know. Marina and Alexander attempted to treat his condition at home on the advice of a doctor friend, but on November 3rd, Alexander finally allowed Marina to call for an ambulance. The paramedics who arrived diagnosed Alexander with a bacterial infection. They recommended water and painkillers and then left. Alexander's condition continued to worsen. He experienced diarrhea, then bloody diarrhea, and the doctor friend was again called. And this time, he actually made a visit to the home. He took one look at Alexander and stepped backwards, absolutely horrified, and is quoted as having said, I don't know what illness it is, but it looks very much like typhoid fever, but it is not typhoid fever. Oh, yeah, and that's not a good look. No, no. This doctor then announced that Alexander needed immediate hospitalization. Of course, upon arriving at the hospital, he was diagnosed with gastroenteritis and dehydration and given a, a course of ciprofloxacin, which is an antibiotic. This did stop his vomiting, but his condition was still very worrying, and Litvinenko's white blood cell count and platelet counts were actually found to be low and steadily dropping. Mm. At first, they attributed this to the effect of the antibiotics, but then Marina told them that she was concerned that he had been poisoned and mentioned that he had a past as a former FSB agent. Mm -hmm. Still, the doctors didn't want to jump to conclusions here. They were like, let's see if the ciprofloxin will work. So would he have had enough radiation in his system to emit radiation to other people around him like just him existing mm -hmm. near his wife like i this might be a silly question or people who know about radiation be like what the fuck is she asking right now no. but i'm genuinely curious and i don't know enough about it so i'm gonna fucking ask no him. he was a point of exposure now so yeah, I don't think it's a silly question at all. And actually, Marie Curie's notes, we still can't examine them. We can't hold them in our hands because they are so contaminated that oh, they're wow. still giving off radiation. That's crazy. So yeah, he was a he was a danger to the that's, people. That's that's yeah, I guess that's a better way to put it. Like, was he a danger to to in infecting other people with his poisoning essentially? Basically, yeah. Yeah. Wild. On November 11th, Litvinenko's hair began to fall out. On the 12th, he complained of a sore throat. And on the 13th, Marina noted that he had lost a shocking amount of weight in a very short window of time. A hematologist was assigned to Litvinenko's case this same day and described him as looking like a cancer patient undergoing chemotherapy because essentially, he was. He was, yeah. Yeah. It was just uh, a lot more free form less targeted maybe yeah, yeah on november 14th a heavy metals test and biopsy were conducted and a new doctor assigned to the case thought that Livinenko looked like someone with acute radiation sickness he even wrote in the file ask radiology regarding check radioactive sources of poisoning a geiger counter was then brought into Litvinenko's room on november 15th but it detected no emissions from his body because the counter could only find beta or gamma emissions. So oh, it, it couldn't so find it wasn't catching the, the alpha. Right. It couldn't find the slower moving alpha particles. Gotcha. Yeah. The only counters actually capable of detecting these were at the British Nuclear Weapons Center in Aldermaston. The same day, the results of the biopsy came back and pointed to a potential diagnosis of thallium poisoning. The levels hmm. of thallium found, however, were very faint. 
Despite this, Litvinenko confirmed to the medical staff attending to him that Russian intelligence was known to use radioactive thallium. Following this line of reasoning, they began to treat him with Prussian blue, which may have been effective for removing any polonium remaining in his system, but at two weeks I find it unlikely that there was any stray ammonium remaining. He was probably already just fully contaminated. Right, right. Like, the damage is already fucking done. There is no return, like, reversing the clock on this. Right. And that's all that it does is Prussian blue is a chelating agent that is mostly used to pick up cesium and thallium. But if you were to look at the periodic table in the same row with both cesium and thallium, that's where polonium is. And it has actually a smaller atomic radius. And so I don't know why. It couldn't also be used to pick that up since it's smaller, but there's just really no literature suggesting that gotcha. it has been used for that. So, I don't know. Short of that, I mean, it wasn't going to reverse the effects of the poisoning. Right. And at this point, he needed a bone marrow transplant. Like, he is not doing well. Right. On November 17th, Litvinenko was transferred to a specialist ward at a different hospital, and upon his transfer, he was met by two detectives who were ready to investigate his illness as a criminal act. And Litvinenko already had a name for them, Lugavoy. Litvinenko had experience as a detective himself for the FSB. And as such, he understood that all he had to offer Scotland Yard were observations and that he had no physical proof. So it made it a little bit more difficult. But according to Scotland Yard, his observations were extremely helpful and very detailed. And he only got a few particulars wrong, like the color of the teapot he got wrong. Pretty innocuous. Yeah. And and he couldn't remember Kovtun's name because he disliked him so much he couldn't even remember his name. (laughs) I love that. The shade. Yeah. Like, like I I can't be bothered with remembering his name. I don't even fucking like him. Right. As much as he was like, I think it was Lugavoy, they actually weren't able to discern, okay, was it Lugavoy, Kovtun, or this Italian man who also was with them at this faded meeting two weeks oh right because there was a fourth person there was a fourth person at the first meeting but there was also a fourth person at the meeting where they actually poured it into the the tea gotcha and so they they thought maybe it was this italian guy okay the police interrogation concluded on november 20th and that same day litvinenko was moved to the icu as his major organs began Mm. to fail but still something did not seem right Litvinenko was experiencing bone marrow failure and gastrointestinal deterioration that thallium would produce, but he didn't have one key symptom of thallium poisoning, which was peripheral neuropathy. Either way, Alexander knew he was close to the end. Like, he was not trying to lie to himself. His friend knew, his wife knew, but doctors were still trying to treat him and cure his still mysterious illness. Mm -hmm. His lawyer came and helped him draft up a final statement, which he signed on November 21st. On the 22nd, doctors officially abandoned their diagnosis of thallium poisoning, and a meeting was held amongst his staff to discuss possible diagnoses, including cytotoxins, cobalt, and polonium, though they didn't seriously consider that polonium was the one. Mm. Is it just because of its difficulty to obtain it or just like because like it's they're like this is highly unlikely i think that's it i think that they were like it's so there's no way to obtain the amount you know but so they were like since we don't know what it is but we're pretty sure that it's radioactive poisoning of some sort they decided to send a whole liter of litvinenko's urine to the nuclear facility at aldermuston and have them test it 
That night, Alexander went into cardiac arrest twice and was placed Mm -hmm. on life support. The following day, he was put into an induced coma, but still suffered a third cardiac arrest. At 9.21 p.m. on November 23rd, Alexander Litvinenko was pronounced dead. Mm. While Marina and Anatoly Litvinenko grieved the loss of their husband and father, they were as yet unaware that only six hours before, the atomic weapons establishment had reported back to the detectives on the case that Litvinenko's urine was terribly contaminated with radioactive polonium. Now, polonium, as I said before is an older material that can be used in nuclear reactors and nuclear bombs, but it's not very effective and most countries had abandoned it by the early 2000s. The UK knew that the only country that still manufactured polonium-210 was Russia, and so it wasn't like a complete surprise. They're like, okay, Russian FSB agent. uh, Yeah, yeah, predictable. Right. But now the people in the UK were a little bit panicked because Did this mean something more? Was it, you know, was it a message being sent to the UK because it was polonium? Sure. Should we be worried? So a theoretical physicist at the University of Sussex was ultimately able to determine the following conclusions about the polonium. And these were only revealed to the public in the report that I told you about. It was finalized in 2015 and then released in 2016. So it was years before the public knew this. Okay. This physicist said that, one, The polonium was manufactured at the Avangard facility in Sarov, Russia, which still produced polonium for use in anti-static settings. Based on the amount and the isotope of polonium, he believed it originated at a separate facility in Ozersk, Russia, where it was used for the initial irradiation of bismuth. So he knew that it stopped at one facility and started at one facility, and there was somewhere in between where it was probably grabbed. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And what is an anti-static setting? So since polonium is an alpha emitter, it can be exploited in the form of a tiny thin metal film that can reduce static in industrial settings. It can gotcha. also be used as like a brush. And so I don't think it's ever used commercially. I don't think that people can ever get it. But industrially, it's just a way to reduce static. Gotcha. Yeah. And so the second thing that this physicist determined was that this act had to have been performed by an agent of the Russian government. Now, he believed this because of the missing link between these two facilities. Oh, okay. It would be very difficult for anybody who didn't get clearance and cover-up from the Russian government to have nabbed it. Right. Right. Jinx. (laughs) (laughs) And they also knew that, like, other places might have produced polonium, but, like, not in the amounts that they needed, Mm. and so they were pretty sure this is what happened. Alexander Litvinenko was buried on December 6, 2006, in the Highgate Cemetery of London. His coffin had to be lined with lead to avoid contaminating his pallbearers. By this time, the polonium was traced back to Lugovoy, who has consistently denied any claims that he is linked to Litvinenko's death. Putin has also protected Lugovoy and denounced the claims of UK investigators. Rather, he says that the investigation has only pointed fingers at Lugovoy to spread anti-Russia sentiment. This is obviously just good old Russian deflection. <laughs> like, no you. Right. Yeah. No, no you. you. <laughs> no, he was trying to poison them. and They're lucky they got away. You're just yeah. trying to be anti-Russia, right? right? Now, I don't even know what to say about this. This was just yeah. bound to happen, I guess. 
Kovtun later admitted to a friend that he was receiving treatment for the same kind of poisoning which had killed Litvinenko. He told the friend, these arseholes have probably poisoned us all, but he did not give further information as to whom he meant, what the treatment was, or how he was exposed. Oh, you, well, may, <laughs> so here's the thing, like, I don't feel bad for him, but I also feel bad for him. Right. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. I feel bad because, like, he's not an innocent bystander. He's, you know, by any fucking means, but, like... That's a terrible way to get sick. It's an awful way to get sick. Yeah. yeah. In 2007, the UK's Crown Prosecution Service charged Lugovoy with Litvinenko's murder, but Putin refused to hand Lugovoy over, and Lugovoy would actually be elected as a deputy of Russia's legislative body that same year. Of course Putin did that. <laughs> Not only avoid extradition, but let's get you a spot in government yep and the story doesn't stop there there's always more political intrigue and spy game and conspiracies to explore but that's not the purview of this show so what i will say is that notably the murder of alexander litvinenko was due to polonium and he was probably the first person ever to die of acute radiation alpha radiation effects of polonium but the other person who ever has been known to die of radiation effects from polonium is Irene Julio Curie, who was Marie Curie's daughter. Oh, yeah, there interesting. was an there was an explosion in her lab. She died in 1956 from a single oh. exposure. Oh, Jesus! Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, yep. Huh. Potent yep. stuff. Potent polonium. Yeah, yeah. So. That's the end of it. That's the end of where I researched into Russian agents. There have been other uh, cases recently that were both nerve agent cases, and I just did not have the energy to get into those after this whole Litvinenko thing that I thought was interesting to talk about and fun to talk about. So Thank I am, you. I'm ready to leave Russia now. <laughs> Let us leave Mother Russia. She's got problems yeah, right now, she's... so good time to leave. I have decided to start causing problems on purpose. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good time for us to, to bow out, but thank you for taking us on this wild Russian ride. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Dineko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison.